Hello, and welcome back to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy your stay. If you're returning, welcome back. We've now spent almost half a year, and it is crazy saying that, time truly does fly, talking about data science and ways to deliver insights to customers. All of that rests on a foundation that we haven't spent as much time talking about in this half year. And that foundation is all of the time and effort spent by the engineers on our team to keep things running smoothly. We're gonna talk about that today. Let's start by meeting our panel. Let's start with Andrew. Who are you and what do you do at Glavio? Hey, uh, so yeah, as Michael just said, my name is Andrew. I am an engineer on the data science team. I've worked a lot on Smart Send Time and I'm now working on our new benchmarks feature that's coming soon. Um, so a lot of what I do really revolves around, um, I guess, implementing a lot of our services and making sure that they run in a reasonable manner and don't go down for our users. Awesome. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, next up, Maritza. Welcome back to the podcast as well. Uh, who are you? What do you do at Clavia? Hi, my name is Maritza Abling, and I'm a, a senior engineer on the data science team at Clavio. Um, I've worked on a bunch of projects here. I've worked on Smart Send Time with Andrew and um, also helped build out the Forms A-B testing feature that was released earlier this year um, and um, have also worked on some of the uh, CLV stuff as well as predicted gender. Nice throwback to episode three of the podcast as well. Uh, astute listeners probably remember that one. Uh, next up, Chris. Hello. Uh, so my name is Chris Schenker. I'm an engineer here on the data science team. Uh, so since joining, I've worked on a number of different projects. Some have been more research oriented, uh, but in terms of engineering, I worked on the volume warnings feature, uh, which was just released to limited availability in September. And then I've also done a bunch of work with some of our CLV and predictive analytics infrastructure. All right, welcome to the podcast. And Alex, last but not least, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Um, I'm Alex, I'm a machine learning engineer on the data science team and I work primarily on the recommendation system and the system that puts products in your email from your Shopify store or other e-commerce store. All right, super glad that y'all were able to join me today. We have so much to talk about that normally we start off with an intro question but we are actually skipping that this week to dive straight into the main topic. I'd actually like to start out today by making sure that everyone is on the same page, kind of myself, our listeners. I imagine a fair number of people listening to this episode may not understand exactly what a software engineer does. I guess briefly in your own words, what does a software engineer do? Well, at a high level, a software engineer um, writes code to help display things for our users. So when you interact with a website, um, there's a bunch of code that powers that. Um, there's both front end code, that's gonna be all the code that, that renders exactly what you're seeing on the page. And back end code is how we store that data. So how do we persist data so that when you come back, uh, we remember who you are and the actions you've taken before. Um, so a big piece of being a software engineer is architecting the solutions by which we store data, um, as well as actually coding methods by which we display the data. What I found at other companies is that software engineers often think of themselves as front-end or back-end, have a variety of distinctions within, but I know that at my time at Clavio, I've written a lot of back-end code and a fair amount of front-end code, and I think the people on this panel uh, would say the same, right? 
definitely. I'm, I'm yeah. seeing nods. People can't see the Zoom call, but I'm seeing nods in the Zoom call. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it really, at Clavio, it really comes down to more, um, we design a solution, we build out that solution, and then we make sure that we maintain that solution. And uh, that will involve front and back end and sometimes a little, a little more than just that. Um, yeah. And I'll also just add that, uh, I mean, this is specific to uh, being an engineer on the data science team at, here at Clavio. Um, you know, it's one thing to, for the data scientists to create a model that solves some problem, uh, but it's another thing entirely to make that model scalable and to deploy it for a wide range of customers. Um, and that's very much where the, the intersection of engineering and data science comes into play is because it's, it's not just enough to build a good model. It has to actually be usable uh, and deployable to you know, our very large customer base. That's a great segue because uh, that actually was going to be the next question. S thinking specifically now that we know a little bit about what software engineers do, how about software engineers at Clearview? We've talked about this a little bit, but one of the things I'm interested in diving into a little more, in your opinion, are there any factors related to working at Clavio that make the, the challenges of software engineering particularly difficult or make your job especially hard? I think one thing that's unique at Clavio that I haven't experienced at other companies I've worked at is just the volume of data we deal with because we're sending emails in real time all the time. At times, building new features can feel like you're you're building a boat while you're while you're um, sailing, um, and uh, because we always have to be on when we say we're going to send an email, we have to send that email. So I think there's a lot of um, interesting uh, engineering problems associated with whenever we deploy something new, we have to think about how it is backwards compatible and how we can't break live functionality. Yeah, just like Marisa said. Uh, you're building a boat while you're sailing, and uh, you have to be aware that even a small fraction of Clavio traffic is a massive load for a new service. You can't throw things necessarily at the database patterns that you're familiar with from previous startup. For me, you've got different databases that are optimized for different kinds of access, and each need to be used in the correct circumstance. And you've got offline data, uh, loads of pre-calculations to speed up email sending or live data that you want to show on your site that you might not think about at a smaller scale. Yeah, and then on top of that, Clavio also has um, a lot of variety in our end users. And so on top of sort of uh, considering all these things, we also need to consider all the different edge cases that might come up because we can't really make any assumptions about uh, what integrations are being used because the way we handle events might be slightly different for Shopify versus a non-Shopify account like Magento or BigCommerce or something like that. Um, and then on top of that, we can't even make assumptions about certain companies having certain events. We need to make sure our features make sense whether you are subscription-based or whether you have, you know, uh, a standard product that like you might find in a brick and mortar store, something along those lines. So just really a lot of things to consider um, at all times. Yeah, certainly the, 
just the diversity of our customer base and the size of it. Um, tens of thousands of customers and customers ranging from, you know, 10 profiles in their account to millions. Um, creating one feature that will work perfectly for all of them is uh, usually not an attainable goal. So it's uh, designing in maximum flexibility is, yeah, a really interesting challenge. Yeah, building on what Andrew and Chris said, for me working on recommendations, a company that makes recommendations with a small catalog might perform very differently from a company that makes recommendations with a large catalog or a company that cycles its products constantly. If you've got a new line, it's hard to use the data from previous purchases and customer behavior, unless you're really smart about that. Yeah, I can chime in there, obviously, less from the software engineering perspective, but that that's one of the things that really stands out to me about Clavio as a data scientist is we've got some one person operations where they are the only person working on their business and Clavio is one of 17 things they have to do in a given day and it's only number 15 in terms of how important it is but then we've also got enterprise level companies who have an entire team that just works on Clavio and maybe does one or two other things and I know that makes my job more complicated at we got into that a little bit. Some of the ways that that makes things difficult from the engineering perspective. Are there, I guess, any really salient examples that stand out to you of a time that just a customer doing something you've never seen before made something complicated? Uh, yeah, we do have a customer currently. Uh, oh, it's really uh, the customer of a test account that someone created uh, who had this one particular customer has 700,000 placed orders. Um, and every time they try and return uh, their placed order history, it's an enormous load on our database. And uh, we've had a couple system exit problems just because of that. Um, and in one case, there was uh, a whole system that got backed up because the system kept retrying just on this one specific customer. Um, and like normally we would fail out of things like that gracefully, but I think. Uh, we just never expected that there would be someone who would try and re uh, retrieve 700,000 placed orders from the table all at once. Uh, but there you go. On Given the, the, side, the scale uh, of what's going on, it, it was bound to happen eventually. Yeah, on the plus side, think of all of the fake money that that fake store is making. Yeah, I, I guess that's another, even that's another type of, uh, you know, I brought up different types of uh, the entrepreneur, the enterprise, but uh, right, like wh when you're, when you're engineering things, you have to take into account things that internal testers do also, which might just be a, a type of edge case that it, it definitely wasn't something on my mind when I wrote the question. So that, that's a really cool case. Obviously, this isn't a problem that's unique to Clavio, but it is one that, especially this time of year, we feel very intensely. We're preparing for it as we record this episode. There, there are certain times of the year that things get much busier than others. From an engineering perspective, how do you make sure that things are ready for big events like Black Friday and Cyber Monday? Black Friday and Cyber Monday is a huge deal at Clavio, so we spend a lot of the year preparing for it, both anticipating uh, the number of end user operations that we'll expect and load testing to make sure that we can handle those um, and send emails as fast as they need to be sent. And, serve up all the analytics that you expect on our platform. 
So we think about a lot of different types of testing the system. We think about, as one example, load testing. So that would be primarily looking for the performance of an individual system under simulated load. And we think about scale out testing, which is a good way of testing the whole system at once. Uh, we, throughout the year, think about data optimization. Can we fetch data more intelligently? Can we fetch more at once or from better sources like replica databases or caching? And we also prepare a lot about, uh, or prepare a lot when thinking about the architecture that we use. So how can we make sure that we can, if necessary, throw money at the problem? How can we add more servers, more databases? How can we remove those after Black Friday to save money? How can we use better machines to process things faster? And what the side effects of those architectural changes will be? Scale-out testing, that's definitely sounds like an interesting topic. Could you tell us a little bit more about kind of how exactly scale-out tests work? Um, what are they? How are they? How they're? How are they not helpful? Yeah, scale out testing is a really interesting thing for me. It's Clavio is the first company that I've ever done a serious scale out test at, and I think it reflects the periodic. It reflects the fact that we have Black Friday, Cyber Monday once a year, and we're not always running at this uh, ever escalating load. We prepare for a particular event, meet that, and then over the next uh, eight months, watch our volume go until we're having Black Friday, Cyber Mondays of the previous year every day. So scale-out testing is kind of making sure that if everything is at its maximum scale, the whole system can survive. One way of thinking about it is thinking about having an event at a bar. If you're preparing for a thousand people to show up over the course of a night, you want to make sure that your operation can stay afloat. So you might prepare uh, and have five bouncers at the door, but then suddenly a small number of people is immediately cleared through their ID checks and runs over to the bar and the bartender's overwhelmed. Okay, so you hire more bartenders and then suddenly everyone's got their drinks and is looking for tables. And so you add more tables and suddenly everyone's at their tables and then needs to go to the bathroom and you can't add more bathrooms. So you realize that your event is going to collapse. And scale-out testing is making sure that if you have five bouncers, five bartenders, five tables, you can actually run your system. If you tested any of those things in isolation, you might find that uh, if you add five bouncers, you've got a line at the bar, but it's not a big deal. If you add five tables, people are seated more quickly. So in our operation, we think, okay, if we are able to send emails much faster, when we're pulling data for those emails, what systems will collapse? If we've got faster databases, what are we doing faster? Um, if we, let's say, want to make more recommendations or more product recommendations in emails, add a bunch of servers to our API layer, what's the impact on the database? And so the scale-out test makes sure that everything is in place and operating normally with a, a typical load, but everything happens so much faster when everything is completely scaled out. A couple particular types of errors that show up in scale-out tests 
are typically maximum connection errors, which are difficult to run into in a normal situation. If you have a, a database and it can accept a thousand simultaneous connections, and maybe you have a normal auto scaling procedure where based on site load, you increase the number of uh, servers in your web layer, you might never reach a thousand uh, connections. But if you simultaneously scaled out your entire web layer and your API layers and uh, your data science team is churning your models at the same time, suddenly you hit that thousand and the thousand and first can't make a connection and everything collapses. So the scale out test makes sure that we're running at the maximum number of connections. It also catches things like memory leaks from running services for a long period of time. We'll run services without interruption for hours just to make sure that uh, the small accumulations from processing data don't ever uh, cause instability. And just to, to make sure that kind of um, everyone's on the same page here, uh, memory leak, what, what is a memory leak? Maybe a typical example of a memory leak would be if you fetch something out of the database, but don't destroy it correctly in memory when you're done using it. So every web request that you make, you fetch a user's session and the user's uh, account information, but you fail to get rid of it. Then by the thousandth one, you've got maybe 100 megabytes of memory usage. And by the millionth, you can no longer hold that in your process memory. Definitely seems like a good thing to avoid. <laughs> yeah, typically to resolve a memory leak, once you've detected it, you look for memory that is allocated and never deallocated. So whether that's uh, connections that need to be closed or um, objects that should be in temporary storage in your process, but are actually in permanent storage. Yeah. Oh, definitely sounds like scale-out tests do a fair amount, catch some really tricky to catch otherwise errors. Um, sounds like a really great tool. But uh, what are some other tools that we kind of use to, to prepare for VFCM? So some other things we do to make sure that we can, um, I guess, handle increased load during Black Friday, Cyber Monday, is make sure that any uh, non-critical uh, services we have, we make sure that those are not creating any unnecessary bottlenecks. So a good example of this would be um, the smart send time feature. Every time someone goes to schedule a campaign, we check what their optimal send time is in case they want to schedule a smart send time campaign. That isn't something people commonly do during Black Friday, Cyber Monday, just because everything is very time sensitive then. And it's also not really something critical for people to do during Black Friday, Cyber Monday. What's critical is that people send their emails, period. And so if we find that with increased load, suddenly campaign scheduling is impacted because we can't get uh, everyone's optimal send time fast enough, then we will just turn off smart send time and make sure that that is no longer a part of the path so that people can schedule uninhibited. Um, and that's just something to make sure that we're not creating bottlenecks where they don't need to be and make sure that the critical functions that people need to do are always possible. 
Yeah, so Andrew, when you touched on uh, preparing for increased load there, it's gets it in another tool we use, uh, just called load testing, which is uh, which exactly what it sounds like, uh, where essentially we are simulating the real load that we expect our systems to be under during uh, an elevated period of load like VFCM. Uh, so just throwing a bunch of data at our systems to see how they can handle it. Uh, so, you know, you might be scaled out entirely for it. So it might be after uh, you've done some scale out testing and you're at the scale that you think you're going to need for BFCM, or it could be before that, maybe to estimate what the level of scale you'll need or how much you'll need to scale out to for a big event like BFCM. But either way, um, so it's good at identifying bottlenecks in your system. Maybe uh, when you throw a bunch of increased load at a system like CLB, uh, the actual like service, um, the task in AWS can keep up, but once it starts having to do a bunch of database reads, uh, you know, maybe the database isn't fast enough and that ends up being a bottleneck. Uh, so you've identified that as an issue ahead of an actual uh, you know, BFCM event. So hopefully you found that out of the way uh, or found that ahead of time. The places where you can start can start to be tricky or maybe less helpful um, when you have um, you know a lot of distributed systems that depend on being able to keep up with this load and like you know you can't actually send uh, a bunch of emails or um, you know actually update someone's expected date of next order in the product so it's you know not a perfect example of the how you can expect your system to behave, but it is a good approximation in many cases. Yeah, I guess getting back to Alex's bar analogy, uh, to make sure that your your bar can handle a thousand people, it makes sense to kind of scale out a lot of systems at once, but you also do have to check that first thing. If you actually have five bouncers, does that get people in the door fast enough? Right. Um, or maybe, you know, if you're doing this dry run Maybe this is uh, the day before you're set to have a big event and you want to make sure that you have enough bouncers on hand to handle this increased load. But, you know, once people are in the door, you don't actually want to be handing out drinks to them. Um, so, you know, maybe you don't know exactly what your bottleneck is going or what the, the increased load is going to do to your system once it gets to the point of going to the bar and ordering drinks. Uh, but at least you know that your, bars, your bouncers were able to keep up. Yeah, Chris brings up a really interesting point. It's sometimes called load shedding, but if a system is not able to handle enough load for the expected event, you have to ensure that the downstream effects of that system going down don't cascade and take out other systems. So to build on this bar example, which I am really stretching here, you can't add more bathrooms to the bar for this event. So what do you do? Do you cancel the event? No. What you might do is not actually hire more bartenders, or you might have the bartenders not make drinks as quickly, or you might not uh, put in those extra tables. If the bartender is not making drinks as quickly, people aren't going to go to the bathroom as quickly. Or maybe you say everyone who was born in 1989, sorry me, uh, isn't getting drinks tonight. Um, I like the bar I analogy. I think it fits. Luckily, I'm not hit by the 1989 rule, so you know I'm happy with that one. Uh, 
uh, hop onto the bar analogy once again. Um, so with, like with a, a feature like CLV where it's not critical functionality to uh, the rest of the app, but it is really nice when it's running properly and it's being kept up to date. So essentially at a, a high level, when customers place new orders, we bring them over to data science and we then tell a few services, hey, we've ingested new placed orders. Uh, we probably need to update a bunch of the predictive analytics associated with CLV. Uh, so those customers get tossed into uh, a few different queues. They're updated. We get their new you know, expected date of next order. Uh, we update their expected CLV, their expected future CLV. Uh, and then we have to then send that information back over into the main app. And there are a couple different places that we have to hit and that you know, we have to make sure to stay up to date. And if we aren't able to do this fast enough, it's not the end of the world for the main app. It's not like it's going to crash or people suddenly aren't going to be able to send emails, but it does mean that um, you know, flows may not trigger when they're supposed to, or segments may not get updated and stay exactly up to date. Um, so it's uh, getting back to the like, you know, maybe you can't add new bathrooms example. Um, if there's, you know, one point, one specific bottleneck in our system that keeps us, places a, a fundamental absolute limit on how quickly we can process those customers, we have to make sure that we don't overload that, but uh, we want to try and get through Maybe we limit the, uh, the flow of customers into one or more of the queues at a uh, rate that we can actually process comfortably. And so it might mean that some customers fall behind by a little bit in terms of you know, keeping their CLV absolutely up to date in the main app, but in the aggregate, we're able to process things smoothly and um, you know, maybe with some slight delay, serve them out to all of our customers, but that's better than not being able to serve it at all. Uh, which is part of the, the risk that we run into if we try to do things too quickly for too many customers. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of having, having a good failure plan. If things go wrong, does it, does it fail intelligently? Uh, definitely seems like it's involved in, at a time of year when just the scale of events makes it more likely that things could fail. Any other challenges related to BFCM that we haven't talked about yet, but that are kind of important to this whole process? Yeah, one of the first things that we think about when we're planning for a Black Friday, Cyber Monday is exactly how much load we're expected to see. And it's scientific, but it's uh, scientifically fuzzy. Like we know how many requests, how many emails we send currently, and we know what a typical Black Friday peak is, but 2020 has not been a typical year. A lot of stores won't be open for Black Friday, Cyber Monday, a lot of deals have already started. So we have this broad picture of what Black Friday, Cyber Monday might be like. We're expecting kind of shorter peaks, longer event, maybe a whole week instead of just really that weekend. We're expecting it to start before uh, Thanksgiving this year in many, for many companies. 
And so we take all that information and we come up with kind of a guiding multiplier. How much more will we see in email traffic in, at peak? And downstream from that, like the recommendation system that I work on is, uh, we say, okay, if we have 12 times as many emails compared to, let's say, uh, July 1st, 2020, and we keep the same percentage in, uh, keep the same percentage of emails that include products. How many recommendations do we have to make? And what is our bandwidth for making those recommendations? Or how how long can we delay an email before it becomes a problem? Because if if we sent an email an hour after you set after you triggered it, your deal might not be around anymore. The same way that you would expect uh, your messaging platform to send a text an hour after you intended to. So we say, let's say we have a 15 minute window to clear any email and we'll expect to see uh, maybe 8,000 personalized recommendations. So 8,000 recipients with personalized recommendations within that 15 minute period. We'll simulate the load of making all those recommendations and run it for about 30 minutes. And that ensures that any recommendation that we wanted to make during a 15 minute period can clear the system within 15 minutes. So even that last one can clear within 15 minutes and it's not at that last recommendation in the 15 minute, the first 15 minutes, uh, it gets to sail smoothly with no other competing recommendations. And at the end of that 15 or that 30 minute period, we look to see what the effects on all of our data sources is. So has our database stayed alive during this load test? Um, are we seeing a peak number of connections or CPU that is concerning? Uh, and then just is the code fast enough? Uh, queries take time. And even if we run, uh, it, and even if the queries don't interact with each other, the system may just not be fast enough in general. So we think about based on a load test, how much we can, uh, horizontally or vertically scale? Can we add more servers in cases like to the API tier or can we uh, swap instances for uh, beefier, more expensive types? Another challenge we have at Quavio is to make the website feel good, to, to kind of make it function properly, some things need to be or at least feel like they are real time. How much complexity does that typically add? And I guess, how do you typically solve problems with making things seem real time? I think that question is very applicable to data science because obviously training models and making predictions can be slow. Uh, and there's oftentimes a lot of the trade-offs become, how do you have a good user experience and provide the most accurate prediction? So this is definitely something we think a lot about. Um, and we work with product to figure out like, how fast does it really need to be? Um, and then when we have those constraints, we can kind of see where we can, what shortcuts we can take to reach that. Um, there's a lot of strategies that help speed things up. For example, one is pre-computing stuff. So predicting gender, we could, for example, predict on the fly, or we could store the predictions for people ahead of time in a database so that when they're asked for, we have them pre-computed. So that's oftentimes a strategy we take, um, but you can imagine it has a lot of um, engineering and architectural implications also in terms of how we store data. 
So for Smart Send Time, um, when people schedule a campaign, we need to know what their optimal time is right then and there. We can't have them sit at the schedule screen uh, looking at a, a loading spinner waiting. So yeah, every time a Smart Send Time campaign um, attributes and we get that data, then we kick off a series of tasks to sort of look at all of the data we've collected and reassess and sort of evaluate and make a decision as to what the current optimal time should be for a given uh, experiment. Um, we do also um, like sort of expose some information for smart send time. We, we tell people how much lift we think that they are going to be getting from uh, their optimal time from using what we recommend. Um, and so to do that, it's a very similar thing where we need to do a lot of pre-computing because in order to sort of know what lift in open rate someone's gonna get, we need to know what their previous sending uh, patterns were. We need to know what their previous open rates looked like. And so a lot of just pre-computing and really caching whatever you can um, in order to just have it at the ready at a moment's notice. I'm almost getting a vibe of a uh... This is like looking behind the curtain at a, a at like a stage play where you know you, you have oh someone knocked on the door but actually it's it's a dude standing under the stage like hitting the hitting the the wood uh, kind of get, getting to see behind the curtain and really see like uh, the stuff that feels like magic is uh, it's it's actually just doing things in a slightly smart way. Uh, so Clavio's segmentation engine or the real time segmentation engine, um, while it is really fast. It's not exactly real time. There's a, a give or take can be up to a, a 15 to 20 minute delay, uh, depending on the exact timing of like the time when uh, an, event, an event happened and was ingested to the time when that segment actually gets updated for that customer. Uh, and that's just because uh, essentially there's some overlap where there's a, a certain amount of time where the segmentation engine is basically listening for new events and aggregating all of them together. And then um, yeah, to make it a little bit easier on itself, then looking at all of the segments for those customers that might need to be updated rather than trying to do that all at once, all the time. Um, it basically makes that engineering system more scalable, but uh, because of the way that like CLV fits into segmentation, um, so if you're using CLV in uh, a segment, it means that, um, yeah, obviously you want it to stay up to date, but because of the, you know, that like sort of 15 to 20 minute um, delay that is just due to how the real-time segmentation engine is built, uh, it means that when we're processing that request on our side, when we first uh, get that new placed order event that tells us that you know, your CLV has changed, it means that we have a little bit more leeway in the amount of time that we have to, to process it. Um, you know, not that we're purposely taking our time with it and not processing it quickly, uh, but it does give us slightly more engineering flexibility to not have to, you know, get the place to order and then immediately send off a, uh, you know, uh, an update to the real-time segmentation engine that, hey, we got this. Um, so it makes things a little bit more easy, a little bit easier on our end 
um, because that's a, a situation where we can't pre-calculate. Like we have to retrain the model or we have to make a new prediction for that customer and that takes time. Yeah, I don't know. To, to me, 15 to 20 minutes for the scale of data that we have and just the sheer number of things we have to do, that, that feels very, very real time to me. Unfortunately, we, we probably have a ton more to talk about on these topics and we'll probably have to get everyone in this call back on a call at some point in the near future just to talk a little bit more about engineering and the challenges with it and uh, how that impacts things at Clavio. But uh, for this month, we have reached the end of our time. Uh, a little bit about this podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Clavio. Clavio helps businesses grow. If you're interested in learning more about Clavio, visit clavio.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. We are available on most podcast distribution networks. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact me. Uh, the best place to reach me uh, is on Twitter, and my handle is at Lawson underscore M underscore T. That's at L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. And I'd like to end with a quick question to the panel. One of the things that I find fun about the software engineering world is the fact that there are so many, wait, why would you make that? projects that just exist out in the world, stuff like, okay, I made it possible to use the names of the tabs in your browser as a database that you can query with SQL. Uh, that sort of thing is what I'm talking about here. Uh, what do you think will be the next big, wait, why did you make that project that we see? This is a tough question. Uh, it's kind of like expecting the unexpected. And what would be surprising to you in a week if you saw like, hey, Facebook or Instagram just released this thing. I'll go in a little bit of a dystopian direction with this. I want to be like, wait, why did you make that about Instagram deep fake filters to pretend that you're your own friends? I want to sow some chaos, do some like cool social media dances, but uh, looking like my friends. They'll just that's be like, that's, that's not my house. That's Alex's house. <laughs> I think I often get, uh, I often forget to respond to some Slack messages. So I think if I could just have a uh, chat bot built into my Slack to just respond for me uh, based off of previous Slack messages I sent, I think that'd be pretty convenient. If I don't respond within, I don't know, like a 30 minute time frame, that'd be pretty useful. At first I was thinking, wait, that's way too practical for this question. <laughs> <laughs> thinking of some of the things that i've written in slack that is definitely not practical if you're basing it off my message history i think as we start to build out um automat um automated cars i feel like having a feature for road rage that can automate the road rage for you too would be great <laughs> so as someone who really enjoys uh, sharks and lives in Massachusetts. Um, you know, in recent years, all of the great whites on coming back to the Cape uh, has been a pretty huge news story. Um, and so I want someone to build me an app that will use uh, shark tracking data to actually like chart me a course along the Cape for that day uh, and time that will maximize my chances of uh, seeing a great white out in the water. But I think that whoever designs this app should do it ethically and make sure that 
said charted course is far enough out to sea uh, that someone won't be tempted to swim or paddle their surfboard all the way out. Um, so minimizing chances of uh, being mistaken for a seal. It's good. Got to keep those ethics in mind. Well, if any of those actually happen, you might hear about it here on the Quavio Data Science Podcast. In the meantime, have a great month.